Mike Cosper and Christianity Today have recently wrapped up one of the most popular Christian podcasts in history, chronicling Mark Driscoll and the story of his former church, Mars Hill. This tale is quite the cautionary one, raising a lot of concerns that churches, leaders, and every Christian should think about before they are faced with them in their own lives. Starting last week and continuing through this one, we're talking about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Not specifically the podcast, but the lessons that the podcast taught, as well as taking a look at several other churches and Christian organizations struggling with similar issues today. Are you ready? It's time to wake up. It's a new day. Yes, it is. Wakey, wakey. Time to get up. Good morning, citizens. Open at them. Rise and shine. This is your wake up call, people. Come on, the coffee's on. We're going to get you guys circulating on Christian radio. I understand young people. I know what's hip. I know what's on. I know what's lit. I know what's fleet. What's up, my nerds? Nerds! I work with a bunch of nerds. I'm a nerd, and uh, I'm pretty proud of it. Rise and shine, nerd. You're tuned in to the Back Row Morning Show, proudly a part of the Love Thy Nerd Podcast Network. I'm Radio Matt, the station manager and a nerd culture missionary here at LTN. I'm a third-generation radio dude and a lifelong nerd. And I'm Mo, the chief cohort and crazy, here to bring the facts and fire to your day. Now, where's the coffee? The Back Row Morning Show is a Monday through Thursday show on LTN Radio that covers a wide range of topics from all across church and pop culture, and we usually take a topic in fours. Four segments focusing on different aspects of our weekly discussion. You're listening to a compilation of the main topic segments from this past week's morning shows. This week, we're taking a look at more of the issues raised by the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Before we jump into our discussions, Mo and I also have a side venture called Back Row Games, home of several Christian tabletop games, including our two most popular, Judge Not and Sunday School Answers. Sunday School Answers is the original Christian knockoff of Cards Against Humanity. All the awkward fun without the need to bathe in bleach afterwards to get all the sin off. We've got some big updates for you. Last month, we released the White Box, our law... Largest expansion yet with 266 new cards to add to your original game. And this month, we've released three new booster packs. The Music Pack, the Cool Youth Pastor Pack, and the Your Dumb Ideas Pack which is a small pack of blank cards for you to write your own card ideas up with inside jokes from you, your friends, and your family. Next month, we've got the Y2K pack coming out and the TV booster pack, too. Uh, but this month, we are once again teaming up with Love Thy Nerd and their community, our community, to create a new supersized expansion deck, the Gamer Deck, and you can be a part of it. Submit your answer uh, your answer cards, the white answer card ideas, and uh, if they are picked to be in the pack, your name will be on that card forever. To submit your ideas, visit lovethynerd.com slash SSA form. You can check it all out and get your copy of Sunday School Answers at backrowgames.com. This week, we're talking about Mark Driscoll and the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Many of you have likely heard of the Christianity Today podcast. You may have even listened to the whole saga, since even though it wrapped up several weeks ago, it's still holding steady in the top five Christian podcasts. To clear some things up off the bat, we are not trying to replicate what the rise and fall of Mars Hill created. Instead, we just want to look at the themes and issues brought up by this podcast and focus on the issues a little more broadly. 
We also want to warn you that today's topic is going to be a bit more uncomfortable than the previous weeks. We will be discussing things of a sexual nature. So if you have children with you or you yourself would not like to hear about this, you might want to return to us tomorrow instead. The first issue we want to talk about this week is the strange culture of sex and sexism in Mars Hill. Mm. Uh, as we talked about a little last week, Mar Driscoll had a habit of bringing up sexual issues from the pulpit on a semi-regular basis, oftentimes getting far more specific than ever need be done from the pulpit or in a public group study. Uh, part of his premarital counseling would force you to list every single sexual sin in your past. Women were told that uh, withholding specific sexual acts, such as oral sex or stripping, was sinful, and that they should repent both to God and their husbands. Uh, he often shared about how, uh, just how sexually submissive his wife was, that she was effectively his private porn star. At one point, he implied that they had a stripper pole in their home. Uh, in fact, a step further... Women were taught that they were to make themselves sexually available to their husbands always, to never turn them down, no matter what, regardless of how the women feel at the time, because that would lead to sin as well, both in their home and in the man, basically making it the female's fault if the man slips up sexually. Uh, this made no room for women who had experienced abuse, sexual trauma, or hurt in this area. Women in Mars Hill had essentially one role. If you were married and having baby, or if you weren't married and having babies, you were not helping the church take over Seattle and thus treat it as so. Now, again, as we mentioned last week, there are several stories of women who found themselves in trauma that Mark seemed to have a heart for and would really minister to. But his attitude was very much one that women were to be sexually submissive at all times. And part of this was actually enforced by how he treated men. He tried to bully and browbeat men into being like him, so they would keep their spouses submissive and, again, pregnant. He said that men are the gardeners of their homes, their wives being the gardens. If you don't like how your garden looks, it's your fault. Women have a very diminished role in the eyes of Mark Driscoll, needing to be completely taken care of, meaning that any quote-unquote sin they are guilty of, the husband is also guilty of for, not allowing, uh, for allowing that to happen in his home. Women have little to no autonomy, unless it's beneficial to his narrative at the time, that is, as he famously blasted Ted Haggard's wife for Ted having an affair with a male prostitute because she had, quote, let herself go. Whew. Mm -hmm. So with all that set up, <clears throat> how did women stay in this church? I... I <sighs> As Chris and I were listening to the podcast, we asked the very same question several times. How did women stay in the church? And it's just something that I can only accredit to brainwashing. Mm -hmm. I really believe that I don't know how, I don't know what exactly it looked like, but I do feel like for the majority, the congregation was brainwashed. And yeah, look, uh, when we pull this stuff out, and the podcast even said this too, when, when, you, when we pull all this bad stuff out, we do have to remember that Mars Hill was a very large place with a lot of leaders and a lot of things happening. There was a lot of good happening in Mars Hill, and all the bad stuff that we hear here really amounted to a small percentage of it, though they were big issues. And so I think that part of that uh, like brainwashing is the idea, but I also think that it made it so it was so easy to do because it was something small snuck in mm -hmm. 
to a larger narrative that you mostly agreed with. Yeah. You go to church and you agree with 90% of what's being said, you're lucky. Yeah. And so I think that this became just a part of the culture. I also think given, like we talked about um, how similar uh, Christians treated Trump as they treated Mark Driscoll, like liking a bit of the uh, audacity, a bit of the the vulgarity uh, almost. Uh, I think that this was almost a push against feminism and liberalism, trying to go back to a more classical style of what people thought about gender roles, Mm -hmm. you know, 50 years ago or more. And I think maybe it was a push too far, like push too hard. Like let's, let's not only, you know, try and, and refocus our, our gender roles idea, but let's, let's take it all the way back to the 1950s. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's keep the women in the home, you know, make sure dinner's on the table. Make sure you're available at night. We'll push the twin beds together like they did on I Love Lucy or whatever. Right. <laughs> yep. Like it's, uh, I think, I think it was, I think it was good intentions that went too far in their mind. Yeah. And like I can see, and I know, I know of a lot of women who like agree that that is the role they want. Right. But at the same time, they realize that that is their choice. It's yeah. it's, it's not something that should be forced upon you. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that women can't work is uh, far outdated and, and has no real need to be uh, forced or anything of that nature in today's day and age. I don't think it's, it is uh, a scriptural mandate that women remain in the home or anything like that. There are things that we are told like we're, we're kind of... Uh, head over, but then at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, you're a dictator or, or of the house or not. And you know, there's 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 a whole lot of the gender role theory uh, thrown up in the Bible that people just took at specific face value right. as solid rules, and then built into what they saw what those rules meant and how strict they were and how that would fall into other rules and other right. formats. Well, and it's, it's the verse that everybody loves to quote, but doesn't like to quote in its entirety. Mm-hmm. Wives submit yourself unto your husband. Mm-hmm. But what they forget is the next part of it is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Mm-hmm. And when you consider how Christ loved the church, um, he gave his life up, mm-hmm. you know, sacrifice to the greatest degree. And when my husband is loving me sacrificially, then it is almost a domino effect that I am going to be submissive to him and not submissive in the way that he's my ruler and I'm going to do everything that he tells me to do because it's blind obedience, but submissive in a manner of love and appreciation um, and gratitude, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really where... I know for our generation specifically, that's where a lot of people had a difficult time with Christianity, just the gender roles. Yeah. Um, being able to kind of wrap their minds around, well, I, as a woman, I have a college degree and I, I'm educated and I can make a living. I can 
be something for, you know, but the Bible is telling me that I have to submit to my husband completely yeah. misunderstanding the verse right? and, and what it means. Yeah. In its it's entirety. not like you got to come home and put on a burqa, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's much different than that. It's really while cooking the three course meal, while cooking the three course meal. Yeah. <laughs> in high heels and vacuuming <laughs> and raising 2.5 children who are perfect. And not disturbing the husband too much. Exactly. Just let him smoke his pipe and read his paper. Right. <laughs> and when he calls for you, you are there. But I do think a lot of this was also, uh, and I mean, uh, of course it was, the focus on the men, how um, the idea that the wussification of men, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I, I understand at least somewhat this mindset, but more from the mindset of how men have abandoned the church. Far more women in a, in a marriage go to church than men do. Mm-hmm. A lot of men stay home. A lot of men have the, the mindset of, look, you, you can go and you can take the kids and you can do whatever you want. I don't care. I just don't want to go. Please don't make me go. Mm-hmm. And that is a contributing factor to, uh, a messed up home life, I guess. Yeah. And there's there's never going to be a way to have that work as well as it should, as well as the biblical standard would allow if one of the spouses is not active in the faith. And I think that part of that is also taking up the roles that is designed uh, for men in the Bible, when it comes to being active in the church and being leaders and, and actually getting out and doing things, uh, both for your family and for the church body, a lot of men, even who still attend church, stop it right there. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll come, I'll sit there for an hour and then I'll go home and, uh, not contribute anything <laughs> to, to the church at, at, uh, at large. Right. I'll stick a 20 in the thing every now and then mm-hmm. and we'll call it good God. Yeah. And, uh, so I think the, the intention of trying to bring men back into a, a, a position of, of, uh, godliness, uh, as, as, as a, a leader of the home and a leader in churches, I think that was a good goal. Sure. I think it was went about completely wrong. Agreed. Through bullying, yeah, what were you going to say? No, I was going to just add to that. I also agree there. He had this idea that I don't think anyone else has ever really weighed in before or after. But when you walk into a church building, it's very feminine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, for the most part, it is very feminine. And when you consider that the church has been decorated typically by ladies. Yeah, man. Get on the decorating committee if you want to change that up. Um, Yeah. Some of the things are going to lean a little more on the feminine side. I mean, so does your home, right? Sure. Like I, I, I help my wife decorate her home, but in the end, like I'm going to go with what she wants. (laughs) I don't know. Do you think that my home is overly feminine? I think that if Chris were to have chosen everything, 
Decoration wise, it would look a lot different. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Anything short of that is more feminine leaning. Okay, so that's that is fair. But you know, Mark had made he told this story about the first time that he had gone into a church and he remembered it being Mm -hmm. like a grandma's home. Doilies everywhere, flowers everywhere. And I can even being a woman myself, I can relate to that. You know, you walk in and you kind of feel like, Okay, yeah, this is this is very grandma. Where's the room full of porcelain dolls that'll keep me up all night? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I do understand why to many men it may feel something that's already uncomfortable, something that's already outside of your box, something that's you're already kind of, I'm using air quotes, but being forced to do, you know? Yeah. And then you're going to have to go sit in a building where you don't feel comfortable at all. Right. You know, the idea of kind of mas- masculizing, that's not a word. <laughs> I don't know what the word there would be, but making, making more the space manly. more masculine. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can appreciate that. I, yeah. I can see the need there. Yeah. I agree with that, too. Um, switching gears entirely. Uh, trauma and abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that in, in several cases, at least documented here, it was almost seen as the woman's fault. Mm-hmm. Now, this might not be like a spoken thing, but it just seems by practice that, you know, if you had or had not done this, this wouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. But I think this kind of falls in line with the same thing of, you know, telling women not to wear revealing clothing. Or you might get raped. Yeah. And that's a very bad distinction to make. A very, uh, it's a false dichotomy, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But, and it puts all the blame on the woman. Yeah. And I think that's an idea that has been born out of the church. Now, do I think that women should have you know, some responsibility to dress modestly? Yeah, of course, that's also in the Bible. But that doesn't mean that when they don't, that gives men carte blanche to, you know, react to that. However, their carnal bodies feel like Mm -hmm. reacting. Um, I think that especially for single women and you'll probably, I mean, you're not a single woman. You haven't really been a single woman as an adult, but you'll at least have a better in tune nature to this. But I feel like single women as a, as a whole have been kind of left out of the church. Yes. Um, Mm-hmm. We've talked that this gets bring up, brought up usually like on Mother's Day, around Mother's Day, how we have some women in the church that uh, can't have children. Mm-hmm. And so like, well, do we make a big deal about Mother's Day because it's Mother's Day and Mother's Day is always a Sunday? Uh, do we not do anything in order to save the the feelings of a few that are struggling? It's always this weird uh, question that there's no perfect answer for. That I know of. Do you have a different thought? I just had a thought. Okay. That I don't know. We're going to go down a rabbit trail really quick. Let's do it. Okay. Um, I'm just going to, I guess, send a call out to all mothers within the church. And if your pulpit is available for ladies, maybe Mother's Day needs to be a Sunday where a mother is given the morning. Hmm. And it's then a sermon that's not just focused on mothers, but from a mother to women. 
I think coming from a woman, it would land a little softer to those who were struggling. Hmm. That's an interesting idea. Even if you were in a church that didn't, um, which I believe is most, that doesn't really allow like female speakers mm-hmm. on a Sunday morning, you could always have a situation where you had interviews with women or uh, or a co-speaking mm-hmm. thing. Like that could be done. Yeah. One way or another. You could have a Sunday morning where it's just, it's not your average Sunday morning and you can have a women's breakfast yeah. where it's all the women and that way, you know, a woman speaking to a group of women, um, and then just have a worship service or couch it in a testimony time or something. Yeah, There's loopholes. That's what we're saying. Uh huh. <laughs> so that is very much down a rabbit trail, but that is something that, listen, I'm copywriting that as my idea. If any of your churches go doing it, good on you. Send me 30 bucks. Right. Uh, no. <laughs> just for the idea. But you did, you did want to talk about the, the trauma and abuse and kind of them being ignored aspect a little. Yeah. Um, I think that there were listening to the podcast. There were multiple times where I was livid. Um, just hearing bits and pieces of conversations that he had with women and things that he said from the pulpit and just kind of reliving my own trauma and just thinking, how dare he, you know, uh, and again, this kind of goes back to the the Mother's Day thing that we were we were just discussing. It would hit differently coming from a woman for her to say to me or how to handle my trauma, yeah. you know, for her to advise me and how to heal or how to process something, then for a man to degrade me. Mm-hmm. And finger point and kind of just brush off real trauma that has happened within my life. And I think that that is what he did with many of the women in his church. And it caused a lot, a a lot more hurt on top of hurt that they were already feeling. Um, You could hear it in the interviews with Jen Schmidt, Jen Smith. I have a hard time remembering names. So I'm not going to be able to tell you. Um, she <laughs> was, it was Jen and Tim and they were part of the pastoral committee mm. or the team, I should say the pastoral team at Mars Hill. And you could hear in her voice still the trauma as she's choking back tears, holding back tears, reliving things that he said to her, both in counseling sessions and from the pulpit and how it was not, you know, it wasn't just a bandaid over the trauma, but it was almost as if he was pouring vinegar mm-hmm. into those wounds and then putting a bandaid over top of it to kind of say, you know what, just deal. You'll be good. You're fine. And, um, with any sort of trauma, that's not the way that you handle it. Yeah. I would like to say, especially with sexual trauma, but that is probably coming from a very personal perspective of my own. Yeah. Um, But truthfully, I believe that in order to have a healthy marriage, it has to be something that is understood 
and something that is handled with a whole lot of grace from both parties. Because there will be seasons within your marriage, if your partner has had sexual trauma in their past, there will be seasons where your intimacy is affected because of that trauma. No matter how many years past it is, there will be seasons where it's affected. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have grace and if you don't have understanding, then that can cause for a whole lot more tension than what the situation itself is already causing. Um, There was one quote where he said, even prostitutes know to charge. And he was talking poorly about women who had had a sexual history prior to marriage saying, how dare you give yourself away, even prostitutes, and to give yourself away for free, even prostitutes know to charge. And that was in in part of the interview that um, was with Jen. She was saying, in that moment, when I heard that, everything from her past just hit her, mm-hmm. like a ton of bricks. Everything that she had kind of just pushed to the side and kind of not necessarily forgotten about, but just not had to deal with on a regular basis and just learn to walk through life in spite of, um, just came flooding through like a ton of bricks. And that's genuinely, that's all it takes is one comment, one incident for all of that trauma to come flooding back. And then in the way that he handled her situation after that, he removed her from her roles in leadership. He removed her. She was part of their, um, one of the writers on their blog without any explanation. He removed her. He then had a private conversation with her husband and said that she probably needed to have needed to be seen, um, by a psychiatrist, psychiatrist that she was dealing with mental issues. Mm. Um, and so then to kind of turn all of this around on, you know, let's not work on your healing. Let's not work on processing this trauma. Let's just say you have a mental illness. That's essentially women are crazy. Yeah. That's the response. Yeah. (laughs) Um, There's no grace there. Yeah. There's no understanding and there's definitely no shepherding of your flock. And it it was heartbreaking to hear that. Yeah. One of the stories that we heard um, Mark telling, uh, in his own words, was of a counseling session that he had with uh, a married couple who the wife was convinced the husband was cheating Mm -hmm. uh, on her. And while she didn't have direct evidence, uh, neither did Mark. Yeah. But Mark immediately assumed that the husband didn't because he knew the husband. The husband was a good guy. A great guy. Yeah. Yeah. So he trusts him but doesn't trust her intuition, which, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like most people who have been cheated on kind of have a feeling about it, like yeah. have a gut feeling that something's wrong, something's up. Because when you're married, you get into routines. And when one person's routine starts to change, you uh, notice that. You pick yeah. up on it. Even little subtle things, you pick up on it. Mm-hmm. And so... To dismiss her almost out of hand, just saying she's crazy, she's she's not um, fulfilling her role as a wife correctly, 
because of this that she needs to that she's got a I think he said that she's got a demon or something well and not yeah he he called it sin outright he right. said this is a lie you know and yeah and so that that struck me as odd that struck me as as dangerous mm-hmm. to dismiss out of hand uh, something that I think should be valid enough to at least talk about right <laughs> <laughs> like the only the only vetting that he said he gave the man was, are you doing this? No, mm-hmm. I love my wife, mm-hmm. and that might have been true, right? But at the same time, that it deserved uh, more attention because you're not fixing anything by just telling the woman, "Look, you're you're sitting for thinking this way." Uh huh. So stop. Uh huh. And that's what he did. Yeah. And that is exactly what he did. Yeah. And I've got to tell you, I. I saw myself in multiple women that he talked about Mm -hmm. in this podcast. Um, You know, my dad and my mom, I've talked about this before, but my dad and my mom, they were members of a church, both leaders in the church, highly respected within the church. And yet my dad was having a long-term affair. And I just kind of think, in that perspective, had our pastors done the same thing to my mom, which honestly, what ended up happening wasn't far off, but that's neither here nor there. But had they done the same thing to my mom, it would have been far more damaging on her than what the situation in and of itself already was. Mm. Um, and what you don't realize is that that situation was incredibly damaging on teenage me, you know? And then 10 years later in my own marriage, I'm having the same struggles. I'm having the same fears, not on any account of what my husband did, but simply because I never healed from what happened in my parents' marriage. Had I sat down, had Mark been our pastor And had we sat down with him, he would have been right in saying, this is a lie. He would have been right in saying, your husband's a great guy. He loves you. He's not doing these things, but he would have been wrong in the way that he handled it. You know, there is a way to go about handling all trauma. And this is one of those situations where I think that you know, going to seminary and having a few years as an associate pastor under his belt or being trained or having a a senior pastor be his accountability would have been very beneficial. Mm -hmm. You know, he could have been guided and he could have been taught for at least a couple years how to properly handle these situations. And there's also the, uh, the growing idea that we should really stop utilizing pastors as counselors if they're not trained counselors. Oh yeah. I think that there is a difference. Yeah. That's, that's too, that's too common of an issue in churches because counseling, especially marital counseling are, it's, it's a bigger, it's a bigger animal than what you're taught in seminary. Mm-hmm. It's just seminary is just a, you know, what you learn is just a piece, a piece of what counseling is, but you, you aren't really set up to do what trained like doctors are set up to do when it comes to, to counseling therapy and things of that nature. And, uh, 
I think this is just one of the many evidences of it. Yeah. Well, and if, if you're pastoring correctly, I think this is something that you said last week, you should be able to have a relationship with your pastor. Yeah. You know, um, and if you're pastoring correctly, then that means you have a relationship with that couple and it's going to be really difficult for you to not pick sides for mm-hmm. you to not be biased yeah. from a counseling perspective, you know, and in that regard, you do have to be able to step away and say, you know what, this is not a job for me, but I, I've got the number of a few people that I can refer you to. Yeah. That's, that's the way you got to go. Uh, we're, we're running long here. The last thing I wanted to touch on is, uh, women are not just sexual tools there for men whenever they're, uh, in need of using them or in want of using them. And so the issue that was brought up is, you know, is, is essentially that's the woman's role. Woman's role is to please the man in order to help him be the man he's supposed to be Mm -hmm. anytime he needs it to be ready. Mm -hmm. And while I think that encouraging, um, more intimacy within the marriage, especially like after having kids and things of that nature is a good idea to make it, to almost conflate it with sin. If you as a woman are not ready at the beck and call, of your husband. I think that's, that's reaching despicable levels Mm -hmm. of pastoring at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, because you are a a pair, you're a couple, you're one flesh, meaning that you should both be caring for each other. And sometimes that means, uh, being submissive in the way that you're waiting. Mm Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's necessary, mm-hmm. but the way that this is built up and has been built up uh, in that church is if I'm ready for it, my wife is going to be ready for it mm-hmm. or, uh, spiritually or else. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and that's just, it's gross. It's gross <laughs> and it's incredibly dangerous mm-hmm. and it's, I got to tell you, Matt, I think that it is one of the biggest lies that women in our generation have been taught and have grown up to believe that it is their job um, and that if they are doing something wrong, then they're going to pay the consequences. Mm -hmm. And those consequences are their fault. Mm -hmm. It's essentially setting up that God is running one big brothel with married women. Mm hmm. Yeah. That they, the husbands have paid up by marrying these women Mm -hmm. and therefore the women have to do the job that they've been paid for. Yeah. Yeah. It's gross. It's, I just want to, without getting into a huge long story, because like you said, we are running a little bit long, but there were a few years where I was dealing with my own healing and processing things in my own childhood that I had never processed. Um, and in that time, it was a time of waiting, like you just said for Chris, because I needed to heal. Mm. I had to heal and I could not properly heal still living under the idea of this is your job and you have to do it. 
You know, my whole mindset towards intimacy with my husband needed to change. It needed to be completely shifted and refocused on what it actually is. You know, something that's beautiful, not a task, something that God desires for us, not my job. Right. You know, there were many times within our early marriage that I would see that he was having, he came home from work. He was having a bad day. He was taking it out on the kids. Okay, here's my job. I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to fix it by doing this. And that's wrong. Yeah. You know, just as much as it's wrong for him to expect, it's wrong for me to use it as a tool. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But then I've had women in the last several years tell me, you can't do that. You can't withhold from your husband because he has needs. And if you're not meeting those needs, then he's going to get it somewhere else. And that is so wrong. That is the biggest, most worst piece of advice anybody can give. Because all that that did was diminish my feelings. All that it did was diminish the hurt that I was trying to process and say, his feelings are more significant than yours. Mm. And if there's anyone else who's hearing that, who's believing that, who's living that, I want to encourage you to stop that God wants healing for your life mm -hmm. and that God does desire an intimate relationship for you and your husband, but a healthy, intimate relationship. Right. One not, that meets not at the expense of your mental health. Exactly. One that meets both of your needs, not just theirs. That's, I think that's what we need to hear more often. It's about the relationship of the two, the couple, the pair. Correct. And we will end with that. That's a good way to end that section. That was our fifth topic in this overall series. But tomorrow, we're going to talk about something we've touched on a lot so far, the lack of accountability. We'll be back with more. Stick around. I'm Hillary Fisco, and this is Reviews of the Nerds. Today, I'm reviewing manga classics, a series that adapts beloved Western literature in the style of Japanese comics. The phrase classic literature probably makes you feel one of two ways, like taking up a book or like taking a nap. Maybe you reread Hamlet every year. Maybe you haven't read Hamlet since high school. Maybe you faked your way through Hamlet and have no intention of ever approaching iambic pentameter. Manga classics are a fresh way for readers to rediscover their favorite novels or experience these titles for the first time. They're faithful enough to satisfy literature buffs, but shorter and easier to read. The manga style really helps make the old stories come alive in a new way. Every volume also contains a section in the back with notes giving insights on design choices and explaining editing decisions. If you're already a fan of graphic novels, these timeless tales of romance, intrigue, adventure, and perseverance will certainly appeal. We're big book lovers at our house, but when my son was assigned the Scarlet Letter for school, he struggled to connect with its ornate prose. I knew we needed a more accessible alternative. The manga classics version maintains the moral core of the book with only a fraction of the commas Hawthorne loved so much. After my 15-year-old and my 12-year-old read and reread the Scarlet Letter manga half a dozen times between them, I requested the other volumes from the library. Pretty soon, the boys were arguing over who got first dibs on the Count of Monte Cristo and Les Mis each morning. 
They devoured Shakespeare, Austin, Kipling, and Twain, rereading each volume multiple times. My tween even broke into a grin and told me he finally understands why Jane Eyre is my own favorite book. What a milestone for a book-loving parent. I'm Hilary Fisco, and whether you're a stone-cold Jane Austen fan or you skated through English class using Cliff's Notes, the volumes of manga classics are worthy additions to your library shelf. If you'd like to follow along as I balance our homeschool life with encouraging, empowering, and educating through my small business, you can find me posting and teaching on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at KYRedheadMK and streaming periodically on Twitch as KYRedhead. Welcome back to The Back Row. I'm Radio Matt. And I'm Mo. And every week, these four main segments get spread out across four daily morning shows on LTN Radio. And they include a lot more content, including weird news, random facts, games, challenges, rants, junk food, and more. And you can be a part of all that by following us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash LTN on air. So you'll be notified when we go live. You can even be a part of the show. And make sure you catch our full morning shows every Monday through Thursday on LTNOnAir.com at 8 a.m. Eastern with an encore at 10. This week, we're talking about Mark Driscoll and the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Many of you have likely heard of this Christianity Today podcast. You may have even listened to the whole saga, since even though it wrapped up several weeks ago, it is still holding steady in the top five Christian podcasts. Now, once again, we're not trying to replicate what the rise and fall of Mars Hill covered. Instead, we want to take... A look at the themes and issues brought up by this podcast and focus on the issues a little more broadly. So yesterday we talked about the weird sexual culture of Mars Hill. Today we're going to talk about something that we've touched on a few times, Mark Driscoll's lack of accountability. Now, at the beginning, this wasn't the case. He brought on two others to help start Mars Hill. His original board of elders all had the same amount of power individually as he did. He often sought guidance from other prominent pastors, such as Rick Warren, Wick Woolen, <laughs> uh, as his church was exploding. But soon, as his celebrity grew and he became the brand of Mars Hill, his accountability began to shrink. He had a vision. When someone questioned it, he fired them. But beyond that, he then badmouthed them, sometimes from the pulpit. We told the story last week of a secretary who loved her job and loved Mark, but shared a concern with a friend about his lack of accountability. Not necessarily concern for the church, but for Mark's own spiritual health. And it got back to Mark, causing him to rage out about it, accusing her of heresy and then firing her. When others brought up the need of accountability to him, he would say that he couldn't be accountable to any of these other pastors because they have smaller churches. His church was bigger. What that had to do with it, I don't know. He would continue to shun being accountable to anyone over anything, often implying that anyone who disagreed with something he was doing was actively conspiring against him and the church. This included the two men who helped start Mars Hill. He eventually stopped mentioning them when talking about how the church was founded. And when his back sermons were being added to podcast feeds, they hired someone to come cut out all the names of the people that Mark had eventually thrown under the bus in the years prior. Eventually, his lack of accountability would come back to haunt him as he plagiarized other works for his books, 
was accused of misusing church funds and, of course, abused his authority towards staff members and others in his church. He's even been accused of spying on church members he thinks is working, are working against him. We'll talk more about what happened at the end of his time at Mars Hill on Thursday, but let's discuss this lack of accountability. How easy is it for us to fall into this mindset that I don't need to be held accountable? I mean, I think, quite honestly, it's our nature. Mm -hmm. It's kind of that survival within us. If someone is holding us accountable, we almost see it as, well, as a threat. Mm -hmm. You know, we, uh we can't really take criticism properly. And a lot of times that's how accountability comes across. It comes across as criticism. I actually had this conversation with my kids just a couple nights ago (laughs) and I had to tell them, guys, it is okay for someone who loves you and cares about you to see you doing something that could hurt you and say, Hey, that's probably not the best decision. Yeah. I think it's also important to make this like a formal thing. It's almost a verbal contract of, I am giving you the permission to hold me accountable. Right. Because that way, even if in the moment it makes you mad when it's happening, you'll at least eventually calm down and remember this is what you wanted this person to do. Yeah, that's the celebrate recovery part of you coming out. (laughs) (laughs) Because there are times, especially I feel like just within our everyday church culture, Mm -hmm. where we have people who we trust and who we love and who we've formed relationships with, but we've never sat down and actually said, Hey, this is where I'm struggling this week. So if you see me veering in that direction, you hold me accountable. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Possibly in the form of a prayer request, we've said, Hey, having a difficult time. Can you pray for me? But we've never outside of celebrate recovery or outside of a, a recovery program. Yeah. I don't think in Sunday school we've ever said, hey, you're my accountability partner. And I think that's so sad. And that's the that's the struggle we had with CR here at the church for the longest time is that nobody from the church actually wanted to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. Very few people anyway, because they didn't want to be open about their struggles. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I mean, I get it. But at the same time, All it's doing is fostering this idea that we have to wear a mask when we're at church. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that most people only ever even hear the words accountability partner when they're trying to quit pornography is a sad thing. Yeah. (laughs) Because you need to be kept accountable. Mm -hmm. You need someone uh, or a few someones in your life who... Uh, can who know you, like you said, who know you, who you trust, who can feel comfortable saying, hey, something's up with you. I don't know what it is, but I've seen this, this, and this happen in your life, and I know something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And be willing to even talk it out or be a shoulder or be a, just a sounding board. Sometimes that's all you need. Yeah. You know, one, during one of my hardest times, and this had nothing to do with the reason that I came to Celebrate Recovery, just something else was happening in my life. And one of my, my hardest times, I had our buddy Cipriano, uh, who uh, was my, we were, we were sponsors to each other for a while. And for that whole year, it was just me letting stuff out. 
and him listening. Mm -hmm. And those were valuable moments to me because I had nowhere else I could go to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And had I not had that, I'd have just been bottling it up and then finding destructive ways to let out that pain. Right. To cope, to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And that's what always happens. Yeah. When we don't have accountability and we know something's wrong, all we do is stuff it down mm -hmm. and then react in poor ways mm -hmm. to what's building up inside. Yeah. And I really do think that was I'm one of the biggest contributing factors to the downfall of Mark. Yeah. Him not being held accountable and him pastors deal with a lot. Oh yeah. They they deal with a lot, a lot more than the congregation even can truly begin to understand. Absolutely. And so I don't doubt for one second that Mark was dealing with his own things, but this feeling of, I can't be accountable. I can't let this out to anyone. I can't get this off my chest. I can't appear weak. Uh-huh. And so he's bottling it and bottling it and bottling it. And what ends up happening is he gets this like paranoid side of him mm -hmm. where he thinks everybody is out to get him and he cannot trust anyone. They're waiting to see a crack. Mm -hmm. That's the and mind. So that whole fight, fight or flee. Yeah, he fought. Mm -hmm. It's a, um, it's a form of arrogance that I think sneaks in on you where number one, the, the mindset just changes from, uh, I might need help occasionally to, I can handle this on my own. And that is a dangerous place to be, but one that you can easily talk yourself into. Mm -hmm. Like, I know me. I know that when the chips are down, I can pull myself up by my boob stra bootstraps, not bootstraps, <laughs> bootstraps. <laughs> not by your bra. <laughs> and, and soldier on, you know, I've had, I've had tough situations before and I've made it through just fine. You know, uh, even convincing ourselves that, you know, I got God and me, I, you know, Jesus and mm -hmm. me, and that's all, all I'm going to need to get through this life. And I mean, that's all you're going to need to get to the other life, but to get through this life, they made it pretty clear in the Bible. You're going to need some other people alongside you. Uh, and it seems right in the moment to say, Jesus and me, that's all I need. You know, I'm letting Jesus take the wheel. Meanwhile, you're over there slamming on the ground like you have a pedal in front of you because you still can't handle it. <laughs> yeah, because you want control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, I, I mean, I, I can't I can't fault Mark Driscoll for that any more than I could fault myself right. or anybody else. Right. <clears throat> um, but like you said, pastors deal with a whole lot more than most of us realize. Does success in ministry mean that you have to be right about everything that you do or that you are right about everything that you do because you're successful? I don't think so. Yeah, because we talked about that at the beginning um, last week, the beginning of the week, where, you know, there might have been some concerns raised about Mark, but people were looking at how all so many baptisms and so many new members every single week. Right. The church is exploding and growing. How can there be anything wrong? And again, like we said, I think yesterday is that, you know, 
churches are big. Those, these kind of churches are big. There's a lot going on in a lot of different areas, a lot of different leaders, probably most of which are doing things uh, great, mm-hmm. doing things the way God intended. And that's where this growth is mostly coming from. Yeah. And there's only like 10% stuff in the back that's going wrong, but it's that 10% that poisons the whole lot mm-hmm. over time. I had to give the, uh, yeah, I had to give the, um, that old 10% or not 10%, that old, uh, making brownies thing. And I'm just going to put in a tablespoon of, uh, dog poop. Okay. You heard this one? No. So yeah. So it's, it was my son. We were talking about music and the stuff that he's listening to. Okay. And I'm like, look, mm-hmm. most of the stuff you listen to might be fine. But there's going to be little words, little phrases, little ideas, little attitudes in there that are teaching you something wrong that I don't want you to listen to if I haven't already approved that you can listen to a song. And he said he didn't understand, you know, why, you know, it's on my kids thing. Like it's approved by the kids thing. Why can't I listen to it? And so I said, well, it's like making brownies. If I make a batch of brownies. And I just get like a little, just a tiny little bit, a little bit of dog poop. And I put it in the mixture and then I mix it all around and I bake the brownies and they come out and they look and they smell just like amazing brownies. But I tell you, there's a little bit of dog poop in it, but it's mostly fine. And you're not even really going to notice it probably like, you know, it's, it's good. I, I approve of these brownies. I made them. Would you eat them? No. Right. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Of course you wouldn't, because you know that that little bit corrupts the whole batch. And so in the same way, when we have a, a church that is, is mostly operating great, but we have this little bit starting to corrupt the whole batch, eventually it's going to take over the whole church. Mm-hmm. There's just no way to stop it from snowballing that mm-hmm. way. Uh, we had a, a very similar reckoning here in our church just in the past few months where we've had someone that we didn't know uh, in a semi-leadership role behind the scenes saying some pretty mean things to one person. And uh, we didn't, you know, being completely genuine and nice to everybody else, uh, but that little little bit of poison in the background was starting to ruin everything our church was trying to do. And once that finally got discovered, we had to address it mm-hmm. and end it. And since then, we have seen a almost a full bounce back just in the last like, half a year, or not even that long, uh, in both optimism and growth and all kinds of things. And I'm not sure if it was all due to that or not, but I do know that that was something that had to be done. But there are too many times where... A pastor is found out to have done something wrong and immediate action is not taken or even investigation of some kind is not taken mm-hmm. because we're not allowing uh, the need for accountability to be the most important thing. There's another church in our town uh, who last year it was found out that the pastor had been having an affair for the last 10 years or something. And instead of firing that pastor... They just took him out of Sunday mornings and had him have a role in the back. And then eventually that church had to close down. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you see where the problem was, right? He can't be a pastor anymore doing this. 
and we'll talk about a little bit about Mark and and what he's gone on to do since he quit here, but uh, and ultimately his complete avoidance of accountability at the end of Mars Hill. Uh-huh. We'll talk about that more on Thursday. But you are not expected to be right just because you have success in ministry all the time. There are going to be times that you're wrong. In fact, it would be weird if you're never wrong. Yes. It would be suspicious if you're never wrong. <clears throat> I have an article here from uh, baptistnews.com called Three Leadership Lessons from Mark Driscoll. And this is meaning learning from the mistakes that he made, not necessarily ones that he wrote. <laughs> Um, so first off, I'm not going to read the whole article, but I'm going to read the three points here. Leadership is not about the leader. Leadership is about leading people. Mm -hmm. One of Mark Driscoll's friends recalls the Mark I knew was a pretty humble guy. One of the first guys to set up chairs at a meeting, always about giving credit to other people. But at some part, a sub point, Mark started believing his own press that he was the most important part of the church. Mega churches are often popular because of a charismatic mega leader. The success of a mega church depends on that leader becoming the face of the church. Speaking tours, book sales, and interviews help fuel persona of a mega church pastor. And it appears Driscoll fell into the rock star pastor trap. Number two, leadership is not about silencing critics. Leadership is about engaging critics. Former elders, board members, and staff recall that when there was a opposition facing Mark Driscoll. He would intimidate, silence, or dismiss critics. In leadership, leaders need to meet with those who have questions or objections. Not everyone will agree with the leader's decisions, but people will go where a leader leads if that leader gives an opportunity for people to be heard. Founder's syndrome often plagues leaders who do not like to deal with critics. And then lastly, leadership is not a dictatorship. Leadership is about accountability. Mark Driscoll was not accountable to anyone. The Mars Hill structure allowed for Driscoll to be the head of everything. Bylaws were changed so that this remains so. The lack of transparency and accountability contributed to a church culture of dysfunction and fear. Only a small group of people knew how much Driscoll was paid and where church money went. Leaders need to be held accountable by a group of people in order to be the best, uh, in order that the best interests of the organization are upheld. So this is a big one. The fact that he wasn't even um, accountable with the money of the church. Mm -hmm. And this reminds me a lot of Jesse Duplantis, mm. who was given a, a uh, honorary doctorate at Oral Roberts University. Mm -hmm. And he was placed on the board of regents. Well, eventually they started having problems with uh, accountability of the funds Funds were just going missing and being used without any kind of approval and oversight. And people at the university were kind of upset about that. And mm -hmm. so the Board of Regents decided, uh, or the, the school decided, that everybody on the Board of Regents and everybody in a leadership position would have to be accountable for the money they spent, just to make sure that it wasn't being spent improperly. Right. Jesse Duplantis and four other people were like, nah, not doing that. And they left. They just up and quit. And that's a very telling thing. Oh, yeah. They didn't have any other objections. It's like, no, I don't need to be accountable for the money that I'm spending. And uh, guess what? He's still not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We need that jet. My nose is itching me something crazy today. I can't, can't stop it. There's nothing like there to, to 
blow or anything. It just it won't stop itching. Um, but anyway, all that aside, <laughs> we can't end the can't end the discussion on my nose. So, Mo, do you have something? To add? Um, actually, I do. And that very first point, leadership is not about the leader. Leadership is about leading people. And I think sometimes we tend to forget the necessity in having a leader who um, shows by example the type of congregation the congregants should be. Yeah. Humble. Mm-hmm. Willing to admit wrong or fault. <clears throat> being accountable to someone, just being raw and honest, mm-hmm. you know, I'm incredibly grateful for the pastors that I've had in my adulthood. Um, and even more so after listening to this podcast, so thankful <laughs> that I was never under, uh, the leadership of uh, a Mark Driscoll. Um, but I, when I think, and I'm just going to put him on the spot. Kevin, for me, was someone who was a great leader in that way. Absolutely. In in the role of being a pastor, but leading by example, mm-hmm. pastoring by example. And I think that for the most part, the congregation showed that. Yeah. You know? I agree. Um. Anyway, it's just one of those things, I think, where... You don't have to sit up on this pedestal. A lot of times, the best example that you can be requires you to step down and be on the same level. I agree with you. Mark's Drisk- Mark Mark Driscoll's story uh, is certainly a crazy one, um, but it's also a strange and changing one. So tomorrow, we're going to talk about his changing stories and some of the stranger extra-biblical stuff that stands out. We'll be back with more. Stick around. This week in nerdy news, this is LTNN. It's all about branding, and Amazon is banking on itself, which of course has been a pretty successful tactic over the years. Amazon purchased IMDB way back in 1998, and in 2019, Amazon branded their new free but ad-supported streaming service, IMDB Free Drive, later renaming it IMDB TV. However, it has lived in relative obscurity, only finding itself on people's radar when their search on Prime Video came up with a show only available on the free service. Amazon appears to believe that IMDb TV is lacking in two things. One, people don't realize it's part of the Amazon set of products. And two, people don't know that it's completely free. And so to that end, they're renaming the service to Amazon Freebie by the end of the month. And while you can watch classics like Mad Men, Lost, The Princess Bride, Office Space, Corner Gas, and a lot more on that channel, they have also created several originals, such as Leverage Redemption and Judy Justice. Freebie is planning to increase its slate of originals by 70% this year. Let's hope it also increases its advertisers, because binge-watching a show with the same dozen commercials in rotation every break gets old quick in the current service. More new Freebie originals will be announced in the company's New Fronts presentation on May 2nd. (laughs) 
That was This Week in Nerdy News. I'm Radio Matt, and this is LTNN. Hey everyone, I'm Hector Mirai, and this is Faith and Fandom 180 on LTN Radio. So this past weekend, I had a fun experience. I was watching TV with my family, and I got a notification in my email that I had a small sum of money going into my Square account. If you're not familiar, Square is the little doodad that you swipe uh, credit cards and stuff on your phone, like if you're selling stuff someplace. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Why did money go in my Square account? And it hit me. Oh, yeah, I have an online store. And let me just tell you, I am terrible at my online store because I'll go to a Comic-Con, sell shirts and books and stickers and stuff, and I will not update my inventory. I have no idea what's actually listed on my website right now. And I absolutely... Uh, reap the consequences of that because someone took the time to go to my website, shop around and ordered a book that I don't actually have any copies for and so I uh, (laughs) uh, just was not prepared just absolutely wasn't and I started weighing my options do I tell this person hey sorry I don't actually have any Uh, Do I buy one on Amazon at full price and then turn around and mail it to this guy so that he can get the book? (laughs) Or, you know, what do I do? So I realized that at one of the churches that I've partnered with, they had bought a bunch of copies of this book to give to their students. And I was like, hey, pastor, can I have one of those back? And he brought me one. And, you know, all worked out in the end, but, you know, I just wasn't ready for what was actually going to be asked of me. And I think a lot of Christians are in that place. In Luke 14, verses 28 through 30, it says, Suppose one of you is building a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. There's a lot of us that have signed up to actually follow Jesus, and we're not actually aware of what we've committed to, what he's asking of us, and we're going to be caught off guard when he actually calls to collect what we've signed up for to serve and to follow. Remember to catch Faith and Fandom 180 every Wednesday morning on the Back Row Morning Show only on LTN Radio. And if you'd like to learn more about Faith and Fandom, head over to faithandfandom.org where you can learn about our Comic-Con ministry, podcasts, memes, apparel, and book series. You can even read new chapters before they make it to the next book. I'm Hector Mirai, and thank you for spending the last 180 seconds with me. Welcome back to the back row. I'm Radio Matt. And I'm Mo. There's a lot going on in our Discord, backrowdiscord.com, where you get to chat after the show, share your own show ideas, keep up to date with our Twitch and YouTube, be a part of our radio shows, and also see the behind-the-scenes workings of Back Row Games, including Sunday School Answers. Again, go to backrowdiscord.com to join. So this week, we are talking about Mark Driscoll and the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Many of you have likely heard of this Christianity Today podcast. Christianity Today podcast. 
so hard to say. You may even have listened to the whole saga, since even though it wrapped up several weeks ago, it's still holding steady in the top five Christian podcasts. Again, we are not trying to replicate what the rise and fall of Mars Hill created. Instead, we want to look at the themes and issues brought up by this podcast and focus on the issues a little more broadly. So yesterday we talked about the dangers of not being accountable to others. Today we're shifting to another reason for worry. When a pastor's story changes and when extra biblical stuff is being claimed. Uh, This is a little weird. So let me... Let me dive a little deeper. So first of all, one of the weirdest episodes of the Rise and Fall podcast is the shortest one, one which they couldn't really find a good place in for the main series, so they released it as a segment on its own. Uh, Now, do you remember, Mo, personally, your story of coming to faith? Yes, of course. And I remember, course. My, I remember my story, too. As long as I live, I can't imagine getting these details wrong. Right. Yet Mark's story of his coming to faith and his uh, calling has changed in both subtle and wild ways. One story involved a homosexual friend, which unintentionally helped him make the decision. And then there's a story he usually talks about where his soon-to-be wife gave him a Bible and God spoke to him, telling him to marry Grace, preach the Bible, and plant churches. And train up men, I think. Uh, He told that story a lot, too, at least once every several weeks, which is far more than most pastors or people feel the need to do. Mm -hmm, Unless you're trying to convince someone of something. Uh, In my personal opinion, this reeks of desperation (laughs) that people believe him, that Mm -hmm. that this is the story and this is how it really happened. But again, how could you forget details for something like that? He would often talk about how important that Bible he was given by his soon-to-be wife was to him, and that he still had it, and yet he posted a picture of a Bible on Instagram claiming that that was the Bible that she gave him, except it couldn't have been, because that translation of the Bible he posted didn't exist until several years after the story took place, and when this was pointed out, instead of really addressing it, he just deleted the post. If this was legitimately that important of a Bible to you, would you be able to mistake it for another one? Yeah. Maybe he's forgetful. Maybe these are all honest mistakes told over the years. But with a clear issue of lying and deception seen in other areas, such as the fake message board persona, it makes me skeptical that any of this is actually the truth. Or if he is trying to build a fairy tale story that sounds so perfect and God ordained. So a question here before we get into more of this, is it okay to pretty up your account of salvation over the years versus giving like an honest testimony? No, (laughs) no. Like I think about, I think about CR, we tell, we tell our testimonies throughout CR and, Mm -hmm. and they do kind of change over the years because the testimony is telling the story of everything that God's done since salvation for you Mm -hmm. uh, from before and after. Mm -hmm. Um, And there have been times that I have mostly for time's sake and for clarity's sake is to not have to go on several different tangents to explain certain things, prettied up some of the details just to get through that part of the story, but not about how I came to Christ, not about the big moments of change like those you tell in their entirety, you tell in their full glory, because those are the big moments of your life. Those are the life changing, the day ones, the, the, the moments that have sent those ripples throughout the rest of your life. 
So if you don't remember the stone that was thrown into your soul to create those ripples, if you can't keep that story straight, then it really seems suspect as to if it's the true story at all. You're going to sink. Or if it's a lie that you're trying to convince everybody of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I really have nothing to add yeah, other than, it just, uh-huh. It seems, yeah. it seems weird. It's a weird thing. I would be understanding if over time his conviction shifted or if his testimony shifted in the fact that, you know, God was working through him, working with him through some areas of yeah. his life that had just recently been revealed, you know, because sure. it is 100% my belief that that is how God works in our lives. We come to him filthy, wretched, and he works on us slowly, piece by piece, putting us back together like a puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, and he can't just put us all back together at, at one moment. Right. Can you imagine how many people would be like, abort, abort, I'm done. <laughs> too much, too soon, too much, yeah, too soon. I, I can't do this. This is not what I signed up for. And God knows that. Right. You know? So little though, by little. Even though many Christian movies will <laughs> try right. and tell you the opposite. Yeah. You make the decision and boom, you and are completely changed, 100% uh, perfect. Yeah. A perfect Christian, even if he didn't know what Christianity was two yeah, years no. ago. That, that's not how it <laughs> But that's a works. different topic. Right. Um, <laughs> but like you were saying, in many ways over, geez, over the seven years that I've been in Celebrate Recovery and the six times that I've given my testimony, every time it's shifted, mm-hmm. it's altered slightly in the areas that God is currently working through me and the areas that he has already helped me see victory. Right. But nothing, none of the facts change. None of this, the story change, just the highlights that you hit change. Exactly. Essentially. Right. It's a, a little bit different. So it's quite possible. Maybe all of what he's told is a part of his true story mm-hmm. and he has condensed it to what he wants to be the main focus. And occasionally slips up with, you know, which detail he wanted to be the main focus, but it just, you know, we don't, I don't want to come out and out and just say, he's definitely lying about all this and he's not even a believer, but, but to have this hanging over you as a very obvious and very clearly, easily researchable fact, given how many times you tell the story, uh, you know, online and in, in all these sermons, It's just suspect. Yeah. For me, I feel like if it were all a part of his story and he was condensing it for time purpose or whatever, whatever his thought process is, at some point we would have heard the story in its entirety involving all the pieces. Possibly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But there's never been a time that we know of where all of these little stories that are conflicting have ever come together to make one story that makes sense. Yeah. That's a good point. So in addition to this, um, 
celebrity pastors have often been caught lying about special abilities and gifts from God. It's usually like fake faith healers and gibberish speakers claiming to be speaking in tongues because these are things that can be easily faked or uh, hard to disprove. And uh, these lies give credence to the power of God in the lives of these pastors and give them all this unearned authority here on earth. Now, I can't say for sure that the gift Mark Driscoll claimed to have wasn't real or from God, but I can say that this is the only time I and most people have ever heard of this gift in this fashion. So the gift of discernment is something that Mark Driscoll claims to have. And that is a real gift described by the Bible, one that God or the Holy Spirit rather does give some believers a deeper intuition with others when it comes to their struggles and their faith. Mark claimed to have this gift as well, but for him, it manifested in essentially a ghostly television screen that would literally play for him spiritual security footage of terrible things people in his congregation had done. Abuse, molestation, adultery, terrible sexual sins seen in full view in their entirety. Essentially, Mark was claiming that the Holy Spirit would show Mark uncensored hidden camera pornography in full graphic detail, including ones that involved underage children. That is not speculation. That is not me rewriting it. That is how he described it. Right. And that seems highly suspect. Yeah. And if this was a lie, he would double down on it by claiming to have seen scenes involving members in counseling with them, sometimes in front of their spouse. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine being told that the problems in your marriage stem from some affair you had years ago that, might, that may have never actually happened? There's no reconciliation from that point. Yeah. Again, I can't say with 100% certainty that none of it was real, but it really seems dubious because nobody else in the history of ever has claimed that the sermon has worked like this for them, at least not in any kind of open outward way. Right. Uh, he also claimed to be part of many exorcisms, which when he described them sounded remarkably like the movie, The Exorcist. <laughs> what do you think of this, Mo? Um... So in reference to the one couple, mm -hmm. I thought long and hard about this. I kind of put myself in that female's mm -hmm. perspective um, where exactly like you said, he in a counseling session told her the reason your marriage sucks is because of the affair that you had. And he with, specifically said, yeah, like the blonde hair, blue uh -huh. eyed guy with that you this saw man this at this hotel while you with were wearing this, this outfit. Yeah. Yes. And I can't help but think that that was a moment of total fear and panic for her and not because she had been caught, but like, wait, what do I do? What do I say here? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm up against someone at this point. Mark has made himself known. Mm-hmm. You know, and while these people may still be going to him for counseling and may still be believing the things that he's teaching, I also believe that there was a, an element of fear mm -hmm. there. Now, I do want to be clear just real quick in that in the podcast, we hear Mark telling this story from the pulpit that he had, you know, had this this 
vision yeah. and confronted the wife about it with the husband there in the room and claimed that she admitted, yes, all of that was true. Mm-hmm. The podcast itself does not have any corroboration with that. Right. To say that and right. indeed it was true. Anything so like that. So assuming that it's this just was a real word. couple. Yeah. If it existed at all or if it existed and it was true. Yeah. We don't have any proof of that beyond Mark's word in this right. sermon. Right. Um, I can't help but think that I'll be really honest and say I might would just nod along when he asked me did you did that right or whatever he said do you remember that i would be like yeah sure and just hope and pray that when chris and i left that chris would be willing to hear me say i don't know what the heck he was talking about but i was terrified out of my mind mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. there was no going up against mark yeah i i really do feel like most people who were going to him for counseling were caught between a rock and a hard place Because it was never in his own stories of these sessions and how he counseled these people. It was never, you tell me what you're, what you're going through. You tell me the hurt that you have seen Mm -hmm. and I'll walk you through how Christ can heal you by his own word, by his account. It's, I'm going to tell you what you've done. Mm -hmm. And then this is the punishment for it. And it seemed to almost always boil down to sexual sin oh, or yeah. sexual, what he would deem sexual sin. Mm-hmm. And uh, almost always one way. Mm-hmm. Almost always the woman's fault. Yes. At least that's what's been made available. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that it's, it's just a... I can't get past the TV screen aspect of it. Like, I I can't get past the idea that he's essentially saying the Holy Spirit is showing him this terrible pornography instead of just telling him, you know, what has happened. See, and I don't, I don't believe that that's how God works. And it might not be. I don't believe that that's how God operates. I believe that there, God loves us. Mm -hmm. And while there are going to be parts of our lives that are going to be difficult and are going to be painful and hurtful. Ultimately, God wants to protect us. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can't tell me that having this gift to be able to see these heinous things like a television screen, mm-hmm. that that's not harmful. Yeah. You know, I don't I, I don't think I cannot rationalize in my mind that God would give someone that gift and say, I want for you to be able to see and have all knowledge of this without putting up some barriers of protection. Right. It just doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't. doesn't feel right. <laughs> doesn't feel possible. And uh, so, I mean, like, I, we don't really have answers here uh, for these. This is, these are just weird things, weird things that stand out as, um, un, unnatural in these kind of situations, mm-hmm. things that genuine people, uh, likely wouldn't say or do. And so 
overall, I guess this is just the, the section that's just like, this makes us feel icky. Yeah. <laughs> no, no real proof one way or the other. Just makes us feel icky. And uh, it's very hard to believe. Yeah. And push forward with that. Mm -hmm. But that's all for today's discussion. Tomorrow, we're going to wrap up our series uh, on Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. Uh, but by examining the end of Mars Hill and Mark's new beginning. We'll be back with more. Stick around. This week in nerd history, the hunt for Nessie. In 1933, George Spicer went for a drive with his wife through the Scottish Highlands. The couple saw a large, unfamiliar creature pass in front of their car and disappear into nearby Loch Ness. They later described the creature as having a huge body with no limbs and a long neck. A few weeks later, a motorcyclist made similar claims, describing a prehistoric marine creature with four large fins and a long neck. These reported sightings sparked excitement among the general public and drew many more visitors to the lake, hoping to catch a sight of what would soon be dubbed the Loch Ness Monster. But was it real? In November of that year, the first piece of photographic evidence emerged, a blurry, streaked photo that kind of appeared to show the shape of a long-necked animal in the water. However, many people also said it looked more like a dog with a big stick in its mouth. However, a few months later, on April 21st, 1934, the Daily Mail published what is arguably the most famous picture of the monster, known as the Surgeon's Photograph. The photo was reportedly made by a doctor named Robert Kenneth Wilson. The photograph depicts the trademark long neck of Nessie emerging from rippling water. For decades, believers and critics debated the authenticity of this photograph with a myriad of theories about its subject. This photo and the tales behind it brought hundreds to Loch Ness that year, thousands more in the years to come. In fact, even to this day, Nessie fans come in hopes to spot the elusive creature. Of course, there's a reason why no one has gotten another photo because even this one was suspect when you really saw the whole thing. The Daily Mail cropped the photo for publication, but the full photo greatly reduces the size appearance compared to the water, to where it seems that it's only a couple feet long. In 1994, Christopher Sperling verified the photograph was a hoax by admitting his involvement in its production. Sperling was the stepson of Marmaduke Wetherill, a famed big-game hunter who had been hired in 1933 by the Daily Mail to find the Loch Ness Monster. After getting caught in a hoax faking giant footprints, Wetherill, hoping to restore his credibility, enlisted Sperling's help to create a model of the monster's neck and place it on a toy submarine. Robert Kenneth Wilson was chosen to give the photograph to the media because of his trusted reputation as a doctor. Though the photo is not proof of a monster in Loch Ness, it does stand as an important part of photo history and serves as a reminder of photography's fickle relationship with the truth. I'm Radio Matt. See you next time for more Nerd History. Welcome back to the back row. I'm Radio Matt. And I'm Mo. And Matt.
Scott and I have been doing this for years, quickly approaching our 500th morning show. You can catch roughly the last 150 episodes in the podcast feed, but you can do a deeper dive into our archives and catch nearly every single episode ever in our Discord. Join us at backrowdiscord.com and visit our podcast archives channel. This week, we are talking about Mark Driscoll and the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Many of you have likely heard of this Christianity Today podcast. You may have even listened to the whole saga, since even though it wrapped up several weeks ago, it's still holding steady in the top five podcasts. I've said this eight times now. The top five Christian podcasts. We are not trying to replicate what the rise and fall of Mars Hill has created. Instead, we simply want to look at the themes and issues brought up by the podcast and focus on these issues a little more broadly. And look, this has been a hard topic to talk about because every day for the last two weeks has been just a rough topic. And uh, we're glad that this is going to be the last one. Uh, I mean, I have more to say. I'm oh, sure. <laughs> like I said, I think at the beginning, we could do this for three or four weeks. Uh, easy, no problem. But I think it would um, break our brains. But that's why. <laughs> that's why the main podcast exists. Well, I was going to say that's why they can go to our Twitch. Mm. Or our Discord, sorry. They mm. can go to our Discord. Keep talking. That's right. Mm. And continue the chat. <laughs> so yesterday we talked about the changing stories and the extra biblical stuff. To wrap up these two weeks on this topic, we want to talk about how it ended. We discussed the issues that got Mark in trouble with the church uh, and the public, where his plagiarism scandal, where large chunks of, I think, two of his books appeared to be lifted verbatim out of other works without any credit given. And the discovery of misuse of funds was also another issue. And several staff members speaking up about an abusive workplace behind the scenes. All three of those combined eventually led Mars Hill to open up a six-week, or well, an investigation that lasted six weeks into his actions. Mark Driscoll gave an emotional speech from the pulpit at the start of this. Uh, and he shared his thoughts. He shared his heart. He cried at the pulpit. He vowed to stay through the investigation, and he expected to be cleared of any wrongdoing. However, long before the six weeks were up, Mark and his wife, Grace, claimed that they were both spoken to by God at the same time in separate rooms of their home, God telling them that they were released and told to go. Uh, and Mark said that he was told a trap had been set. To this day, no one in charge of the investigation claimed to have any knowledge of any kind of trap. Instead, it feels like a face-saving measure by the Driscolls. Not only did God tell us that we don't have to stay here and be accountable for our actions with Mars Hill, but we also are implying that God is still on our side because he's protecting us from the evil conspirators in the elders board. He came off looking like the good guy being persecuted in many Christians' eyes. In doing so, he also abandoned those who still trusted him in Mars Hill. The church limped along several weeks before all of the campuses essentially became their own separate churches, dropping the Mars Hill name and connections. And just like the extra biblical stuff from yesterday's discussion, we can't for sure say what the whole God said we're released thing. Uh, we can't t t for sure say if that was real or fake, but it sure seems suspect as well given the situation and given that I'm sure he would have told you he was already prayerful about what he was going to say before that Sunday morning. So was he not listening to God then? And did he just open up his ears a couple weeks later and say, never mind, you don't have to go through all that. Since then, 
he has gone on to lead a new church. And he has uh, several fired staff members and former members of that church who have come forward to say the exact same stuff he was accused of doing at Mars Hill is still happening. And in fact, some new stuff like stalking the boys interested in dating his daughter, complete with 24-7 surveillance and threats. Yet his church is still huge. His celebrity is still growing. People are still flocking to his preaching in spite of everything. Many people uh, who condemned his actions in Mars Hill are now on the, well, let's forgive him. Let's give him another chance bandwagon. Why are we there already? Why is, is this happening again? I mean, I have a good idea. <laughs> I think that for Christians, we forgive so that Christ forgives us. Sure. You know, and that scripture, that verse can seem very terrifying. Mm-hmm. You know, if I am holding on to something, if I'm choosing not to forgive someone, is does that mean that God isn't going to forgive me? You know, and when we're really honest about the sin in our lives, there's a lot of forgiving that God has to do Yeah. daily. You know, there's a lot of repentance that we are required to do daily. Um, and so I think a lot of times people, Christians just want to extend grace in hopes that I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing the Christianly thing. I'm doing what God would do. I don't, I'm not God. I can't judge him. Only God can judge him. And so I'm just doing what I'm called to do and I'm extending grace and I'm forgiving him. Well, yes, but no. <laughs> yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> there is a level of accountability Mm-hmm. That has to be taken. I'm going to skip to the second question that we have here and we'll come back to the first one. Okay. But going off of that, there have been lots of pastors or spiritual leaders that have been caught in the act doing terrible things. Mm-hmm. And they have been removed as pastors. Some have gone to jail. And then without any real humility, they are offered or they take up on the, upon themselves to get back in the same role they were in before without any new forms of accountability or anything else protecting them from making the same mistake. And they start to make the same mistakes. Again, the perfect example of that was Jim Baker. Mm who's doing the exact same scammy garbage. Yeah. Bilking uh, old people out of their money that he did before. He's just gotten smarter about it, making it look legal. Isn't he an old person at this point? (laughs) He's an old rich person. And there's so many people who are just fine with that. Mm -hmm. And I don't... I think there comes a time that even if you are called by God to be a pastor, if you yourself ruin that, then you ruined it. Yeah. Like you, you screwed it up. Mm -hmm. Yes, you were called to be a pastor, but 
then you squandered it. You served your time. So now go do something else. Mm-hmm. Mark should be doing accounting somewhere. He should be in uh, you know, a cubicle. He should be doing something that is completely off the radar of pastoring a church because mm-hmm. it's been made clear over and over and over again that that is not the role he's good in. He's got a silver tongue and he's got great charisma and he's saying a lot of the hard things that maybe some Christians do need to hear. But at the same time, he's not a leader. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's proven that. He doesn't know what he's doing behind the scenes. If you can't do the same thing you do on Sunday morning on Monday morning, if you can't live what you yourself are preaching with how you treat the people behind the scenes... If you can't allow yourself to be accountable to the older and the wiser or a team of people that you can put in place to keep you in check, if you refuse to let yourself play the role of pastor the way it's supposed to be done, you don't belong there anymore. There's Mark did not ever have to go back to another church. Mm-hmm. He could have, he'd still be rich. He'd be fine the rest of his life. But instead, I think not a call from God, but a lust for power, and this is just my speculation, brought him back into a position of authority. The call for celebrity, the desire to be treated in a way that is above everybody else. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's something, some mental change that comes with people that become celebrities, whether they're Christians or not. I don't know. But it is such a crazy thing to me that Christians accept the same people back in the same positions that they already proved they couldn't handle Mm -hmm. with little to nothing to give any assurance it won't happen again. Yeah. God can restore. I've seen it. But with that restoration comes a true form of repentance, a true visible sense of growth and change. And if those things are not apparent, if those things are are absent from the situation, you are not required to give this person your trust. Forgive him, sure. But that doesn't mean you have to trust him in a position he is no longer qualified for. Right. We're warned of the wolves in sheep's clothing. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of times we like to think of that as just, you know, people who walk around claiming to love God, but really they know they're only saying those things to suck others in. Yeah. And pull them in the other direction. You know, we kind of view those as true antichrists, you know, who just get in, who just scrape the top of what our ears like to hear. Mm -hmm. But what we don't realize is a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers are in fact wolves in sheep's clothing. Because they say one thing on Sunday morning and their lives reflect the total opposite. And 
for all intents and purposes, that is Mark. Mm -hmm. And he's proved that, you know, that's not us just throwing out an accusation. His life and what he has said, words from him have proved that. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we need to take very seriously as Christians. We cannot continue to allow spotlight on pastors like these. They're doing more damage than good. Mm -hmm. And we're allowing it. From personal experience, uh, I have struggled with pornography a lot in my life. And so much so, and to such a degree, that I needed to go into recovery for it. And one of the things I can tell you, just like an alcoholic could tell you the same thing with alcohol, is that now that I know where my struggles lie and the things that I am uh, not safe around, I don't put myself in those situations where the situation could, or where that addiction could come back or where that bad habit or that hangup could rear its ugly head again. If you can't handle leadership, don't put yourself in leadership. Mm -hmm. I don't put myself in um, strip clubs <laughs> because I know that that's going to send me down an entirely terrible path. I don't put myself anywhere near, well, I guess they don't really exist all that much anymore, but they did uh, 10 years ago, uh, movie rental places that had an adult section. Because I knew I couldn't handle that kind of stuff. You have to learn your limitations. Just like the alcoholic says that he will always be an alcoholic. Even if he's been sober for 25 years, he knows that ruining that and falling back into that same old pattern is just a sip away. Mm. You let down your guard one time. You give yourself an excuse you rationalize it one time. Oh, it's just New Year's Eve. We're all having some, a, sh a sip of champagne. You rationalize it one time thinking, I can handle this now. Hmm. What's God telling you to do? Is he saying you can handle it? Would he ever say that to you? No, because there's no spiritual benefit to you drinking alcohol as someone who had a problem with alcohol. There's no spiritual benefit of me having a computer that doesn't have some sort of accountability software on it when I know that one uh, incognito browser later, I could ruin the near 14 years of sobriety from this stuff I've had. Because I know that's an issue. God knows that's an issue. And God wants us to be submissive to the fact that... There are going to be things that are outside of the boundaries of our lives. We've seen that. We've surrendered it. We can't go back to it. If you have a problem with anger, if you have a problem with leading others, if you have a problem with uh, lack of accountability, don't put yourselves in situations where those are going to be main issues in your life on a daily basis. Main temptations for you to ignore and rationalize on a daily basis. Don't be a pastor 
if you can't be a pastor the way God wants it. So either we're in a situation where either this is a terrible situation all around and Mark Driscoll should not be in leadership ever again like this, or he's right and every single ex-staff member and several families that have been in counseling and every single staff member that has come out in his new church are all in one big conspiracy to bring him down. I'm not normally this curt, but I feel like I feel like there's only one real answer here. It makes me really sad. And and it makes it worse that like you said, it's there's so many of us as believers that fall prey to this. Mm-hmm. And look, I'm I'm not even saying that many of us are like devoted. Many of you are even devoted to following Mark Driscoll. Again, it could be a Trump situation. Like I said, there's a lot of people that want Trump to run again, even though we have someone who's possibly running that has essentially the same worldview, but is less vulgar, less crazy, less weird. We have this like, but, but Trump, (laughs) yeah, you know, kind of mindset. And I think there's a lot of people that are like, sure, he had some issues. And look, I like a guy that gets angry and passionate every now and then. And, you know, rationalizes all this away to approve of the fact that he's back. And again, he might be fine 90% of the time, but it's the 10%, the 10% that ruins the whole thing. You know, and it's really, it's really easy for us to sit here and say, how (laughs) this doesn't make any sense for us to be on the outside and kind of banging our head against the walls in disbelief and frustration. Um, but I will be really honest and tell you this is abuse perfectly played out, Mm -hmm. you know, how many times does an abused go back to their abuser? You know, a lot of times to death, sadly. Yeah. All because there is an element of safety in knowing what's to come. Yep. And I think for a lot of people, they're in that mindset when it comes to Mark Driscoll. They want to believe. Oh, of course. They Of course. I'm sorry. Let me just throw that in. Don't hear us saying anything, you know, in this, in this tone and thinking we mean don't love Mark Driscoll. Right. Don't pray for him. Don't hope better for him. Cause that's not anything like what we're saying at all. I'm not saying we throw away him, throw him away as a human being or a child of God. But anyway, continue. Right. And honestly, I was, when I was saying they want to believe, I was meaning they want to believe in Jesus. They oh, okay. want to believe yeah. in, Sorry. you know. <laughs> in Christianity, but they're, their foundation was built on abuse and misunderstanding. Gotcha. And so now they have this idea, something that they want, something that they understand and need and an urgency for, but they're also facing this 
terrifying aspect of if I go somewhere else, are they going to be worse than Mark? Am I going to hear worse than Mark? Am I going to be treated worse than what I was treated with Mark? At least with Mark, I know what I'm getting into. Mm -hmm. At least with Mark, I know how to handle it. You know, using that same analogy, I think, you know, we see abusive, like physically abusive relationships portrayed on TV and movies where, you know, the the husband is always a monster. Mm -hmm. And I think in many cases, it's more like 99% of the year, great husband. Yeah. For, you know, for the most part, flawed, but fine husband. And then the 1% of the year is when abuse happens. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that there might be Time in between the bad moments. Mm -hmm. So much time that it can convince you, no, he's got this goodness in him Mm -hmm. that he, you know, this, it was a mistake. There's that element of hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, sometimes hope can kill you. Mm -hmm. Like hope, hope can be just as heartbreaking as it can be inspirational. Right. Sometimes. When our hope is placed incorrectly. Yeah. In human beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And I want to point out really quick, I just kind of had a, a realization, you know, Mark said time and time again that his calling was to plant churches, to marry grace, to plant churches and to preach the word. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in there does it say he has to be a pastor mm. because there's a difference, mm-hmm. you know, he married grace. There you go. Check. All right. We got that one. You have set yourself up financially to where you can plant churches. You can be a huge part of church planting without being the pastor of that church. I mean, he even helped launch Acts 29. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in retrospect, you know, he started that. Mm-hmm. Like, so check that as well uh-huh. already. Right. And I mean, we're all called to preach. We're all called to go and make disciples. Mm-hmm. Nowhere in there is he told believing, trusting that, you know, what he says, God told him is, is true. You were never told to be a pastor friend. That could be where you got it wrong. Hmm. I don't know. So in the end, um, we said pretty much all we could say. Um, might've gotten a little more, uh, uh, enthusiastic in this last one than I intended to, <laughs> but it hurts my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that you, like I listened to this through originally when it first came out, like I was waiting on it every other week and you brought up, you know, a few weeks ago, we need to do a show about this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to have to listen to that whole thing again. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was hard. And I, I remember telling John that I was, that we were doing that and I was listening to it again. He said, how, how can you listen to that thing again? Mm-hmm. But it is such an important cautionary tale for all believers that are in any form of leadership and ministry, mm-hmm. because in the end, I don't think it was ever Mark's goal for all of these bad things that have happened to have happened. Yeah. I don't think it is Mark's desire to get up and cuss out staff members behind the scenes. I don't think it is Mark's desire to belittle or hurt women. I don't think that these are things that he wants to do. I think these are things that come as a, 
um, side effect to the personality that he puts into his ministry, to the lack of accountability that he allows himself to have, to the hubris, to the to the uh, arrogance that he has as a leader, thinking that because his church is big, he can't be. Uh, held accountable to someone with a smaller church, that he can't have a group of men around him that are able to tell him no or you're doing something wrong. This idea that because there's growth in your church, that means everything you do is right. All of that has been conflated into this idea of I, I might not be perfect, but I'm doing what God told me to do and it's working. And so to heck with changing the stuff that might not be seen as perfect to outsiders, but seems to be working for him. Cause in all of this, he's yet to actually been held, hold, held accountable for anything that he's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He avoided after promising to stick through with that investigation to just come out and say, no, God said we could leave. Super fishy. Mm -hmm. And I think, I honestly think that they left because they knew what they were going to find. Yeah. And to not have that come to Jesus moment to not allow yourself to be confronted with your own sin. That's something that only a celebrity pastor can get away with these days. And I think because his sins have yet to be of a sexual nature, which I hope is not the case. And I'm not trying to imply that there is any kind of, uh, of that going on. That tends to be the big scandal for most, mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's why he's kind of gotten away with it. Yeah. Cause it's not as bombastic as the other stuff. Mm-hmm. And in that it's gotta be a cautionary tale for us as believers looking for a leader as well. Mm-hmm. Please, please don't just blindly trust a pastor or a small group leader or anything like that. Please. I'm not saying actively search for ways to sabotage them. I'm not saying anything like that, but do read the Bible for yourself and compare what you're being taught with what the Bible actually says. Mm-hmm. Compare how you're being treated by your pastor with how the Bible says a pastor should treat his flock. When things seem fishy, when things seem scary, when things seem suspect, be willing to talk about it. Not in a gossipy way, but with the leadership. Yeah. Have the hard conversations. Mm-hmm. Don't just brush it aside more importantly than anything. Don't explain it away. Don't say, oh, it was just this one time. Don't let yourself become a part of an abusive relationship just because he's your pastor or he's a leader. Mm-hmm. Or she in Bible study or anything else. Mm-hmm. This can happen anywhere in any form of leadership in the church. Mm-hmm. And if you are a leader, 
please keep your head on straight and please pray constantly for God to show you if you start walking down a wrong path. Please pray constantly for God to put people who will hold you accountable in your path on a daily basis. And please have a heart open enough to be shown that you're doing something wrong Mm -hmm. and be willing to change and be willing to admit it and be willing to apologize for it. (sighs) Because the longer you don't, the easier it'll be to just avoid all accountability in total. Mm-hmm. I pray, Mo and I both pray that Mark Driscoll will turn things around. Mm-hmm. If he's going to be given a second chance as a pastor, he should try and utilize it in a way that can somehow redeem him in this role. So if he's already here, pray for him to get accountability in his life. Pray for him to calm down the celebrity aspect of his pastoring. Pray that he can become the pastor that God has called him to be, or he thinks that God's called him to be. And to be willing to make amends. Absolutely. That was one of the other harder things, and I know we won't get into it deeply, but after that, it all happened. And after he had left, there was one story about a guy who was on the, the elder board who had called and just tried to make, you know, make peace after all of it. Mm-hmm. And he said that Mark had said, I, I already forgave you. And in fact, I've already forgiven you for the thing that you were going to do, too. Mm-hmm. And this elder has no idea what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. And Mark wouldn't say it. Yeah. He just had this, this, this arrogant, um, self-righteous, self-righteous, I'm still in the right kind of attitude that there was this conspiracy against me kind of thing. Yeah. And look, there might've been some people that were (laughs) against him being in that position, but clearly with good reason up at that point. Sure. And with a church of the size that he was leading, there's going to be at least one person who, Mm -hmm is against it, but it's almost as if he wasn't trusting God <laughs> to protect him. In that Absolutely. Situation. Absolutely. He couldn't, he could not only not trust the people in his life, but he couldn't trust God. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty evident. So if you haven't listened to the podcast, uh, I would encourage it though. It is, uh, difficult. Uh, it's not bad. It's actually very well made, mm-hmm. very, very very well researched. There's quite a lot of uh, interview aspects and and a lot of good storytelling in it. It's that very really good. Paints a good picture. Yeah. Um. And like I said, it's it's one of the top five podcasts right now in the Christian and the religion and spirituality sections uh, in the analytics. So it's the rise and fall of Mars Hill. By Christianity Today, uh, led by Mike Cosper, and uh, we do we do encourage it. We encourage you to listen for yourself and and see if you pulled out the same things that we did. Uh, but this is going to end our discussion this week and the issues brought up by the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Two whole weeks worth, uh, but we want to know what you think. What do you think of our discussions? Did we miss an angle? Uh, come share your thoughts in our Discord at backrowdiscord.com in the Respond to Show channel. 
Message us on any of the socials at the Back Row LTN or leave us a voicemail at 575-562-8052. That's going to do it for the Back Row Morning Show. We hope you enjoyed our discussions and hope you'll join us again next week. Remember that we air our full morning shows first exclusively on LTN Radio, LTNOnAir.com, every Monday through Thursday at 8 a.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 a.m. But if you miss a day or just can't catch the show live, you can find our four full shows and our weekly main podcast by searching The Back Row Morning Show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all the podcast apps. Subscribe, rate five stars, and leave a review. Or don't. We're not your parents. We won't be mad. Just disappointed. Check out LoveThyNerd.com. It is positively jam-packed with articles, podcasts, and videos that cover a wide range of nerdy topics. And just like any ministry, we are largely supported by those willing to partner with us financially. As one of the newest staff members of LTN and a nerd culture missionary, I'm looking to build my support team to help this radio station grow, to help my family financially as I pour more focus into all I get to do for LTN. And uh, for more information on that, you can visit LoveThyNerd.com slash RadioMatt. Uh, or just reach out to me directly. Love Thy Nerd is a qualifying 501c3 nonprofit organization, and your gift is tax deductible. Don't forget to make sure you're following us on all the socials. <laughs> We're on the book, the twit, the gram, and the talk. Just search for at the back row LTN and connect with us. Once again, I'm Radio Matt. And I'm Mo. And remember, if nobody else tells you, we promise it's true. Jesus, Jesus loves, loves you, nerd. nerd.